It's like someone marching down the stairs wearing really heavy boots. And you don't want them to get to the bottom of the step, but every time they get closer, it gets louder and louder. And then right on the 24th, I could feel they've descended all the way down the stairs. They're right there, they're right in the room. And they're not gonna go away for, I don't know when. This is Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University about lives upended by Russia's war. I'm Masha Udenseva-Brenner, the Institute's media manager, and that was our MA candidate, Daniel Brennan. He's a student of Marko Andrejcik's, whom you heard from in the last episode. Daniel was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine from August 2019 until March 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic cut short his service. His story is the last of this season, but we plan to be back with more episodes in the fall. From the moment he got off the plane, Daniel says he felt at peace in Ukraine. I remember getting off and you go through customs And we're sitting there waiting for this big bus to come. And the sun just had this very orange halo to it. Everything felt very still and calm. He was placed in a small city called Khluchiv in northeastern Ukraine's Sumy Oblast. It's one of the oldest cities in Ukraine. When I got there, it was fall. The apartment that's on one of the main streets in in the town. And I look out on the balcony and it's just this beautiful medley of of colors, the leaves being orange and brown and green, and it's all there together. In the distance, he could see a big water tower from the 1920s, a white stone structure with an observation deck. Kind of jutting up above the rest in some old Baroque Mazepa churches, and you can see those poking up too. I just felt this weird sense of joy of being in this space that I had no idea existed, but is so beautiful. The Peace Corps arranged for him to stay with a local. This host Baba, she's very nice, very very old woman. She had this red dyed long hair that was very curly. She's so warm, just hugged us immediately when we got there. Daniel said us because, like all Peace Corps volunteers, he was paired with a counterpart, a Ukrainian national to guide him through the program. Daniel's counterpart was Svetlana. She's in her late 40s, early 50s. Her face is very full and always filled with a smile, a soft, wide smile. And she just carries herself with so much determination through every action. Svetlana had been trying to bring a Peace Corps volunteer to Hluchiv for many years. She wanted to create a cultural center for English language learners with books and lessons and clubs. Daniel's job was to teach English at the school and to help Svetlana execute her vision. My first day, I just sat in on all the lessons. The school is very big, and it felt a lot like my high school. The teachers, they really want the students to learn. They really want to get something out of teaching, and it's my job to catalyze that. And seeing the students, they're just like kids in the U.S. They play on their phones, they they have problems with their peers, they're teachers or their parents. They want to watch TV shows all the time. Daniel made friends, played basketball every Sunday with the school's gym teacher and other locals. Life in Ukraine was unlike anything he'd experienced. 
There's just something so unique and distinct about being in Ukraine. There's a sense of community. There's a sense of wholeness amongst people. That sense of connection to not just yourself, but to the earth on which you step. But only a few months after he got there, the pandemic happened. We had been getting notification email by email. There's this thing going on in China. And little by little, you see the number of cases go up. Other Peace Corps offices and Peace Corps volunteers are getting evacuated. And all of a sudden, you're told, pack up your stuff. We're going to all meet at this one destination in Kyiv. Daniel had to tell Svetlana, his Peace Corps counterpart, that he was leaving. It's not something I wanted to do. I don't think anybody ever wants to let someone else down. She had worked for probably like 10 years to get me to be there, to help her do the things that she wanted to do, the vision that she had for her school, for her children, for her community. He sat her down to break the news. The beautiful thing about Ukrainians is they always have this optimism. She said, everything will be fine. And I still think about that. The Peace Corps volunteers were told they'd be evacuated on March 15th, but the borders had already closed. We were locked in a hotel until the United States government could charter us a plane to leave. Stuck, all of us not knowing when we would get out, when we would come back. And then on the early, early morning of March 20th, we had been up all night waiting on the tarmac for clearance that we could leave. They tried to give us enough masks and gloves and hand sanitizer, but it was just kind of useless with 200 of us. Daniel flew back to the States and stayed in Florida with his mom. I felt terrible. I didn't sleep. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was going to do. I waited for about three months. They kept on giving us hope and they kept on pushing it. Hey, August 2020 is when we'll be back. Late fall 2020, February 2021. Then, as summer approached and the pandemic showed no signs of relenting, he realized it wasn't going to happen. So I started thinking, okay, how can I get back to Ukraine and what do I need to do? First, I need a job. And second, I need a higher level degree. He studied for the GRE and found a job as a financial crimes analyst at Credit Suisse. Then in the spring of 2021, he was admitted to the Harriman Institute's master's program at Columbia University. Daniel enrolled that fall and was finally feeling good about his life again. Then the world started talking about the Russian troops accumulating on the Ukrainian border. I think right around late January, I started to feel like things were different. You don't amass that many troops that close to the border unless you're going to do something. It's like someone marching down the stairs and they're wearing really heavy boots and you don't want them to get to the bottom of the step, but every time they get closer, it gets louder and louder. Each day brought new alarms, warnings from the U.S. government, more troops from Russia. And then right on the 24th, I could feel they've descended all the way down the stairs. They're right there, they're right in the room, and they're not going to go away for I don't know when. He says he stayed up for three days straight, following the war on Telegram in Ukrainian and Russian. And I just remember looking at that and seeing them just 
notification after notification after notification, explosion here, explosion here, explosion here, a loud explosion here, explosion here, explosion here, and just thinking like, oh my god, oh my god, it's really happening. And this sense of dread just washes over you that consumed me. And were you talking to your friends in Ukraine throughout all this time? Yeah. Part of my thesis was going to be work with cultural Cossack groups, usually men dress up in traditional Cossack garb. They have the haircuts and the earrings. They play Ukrainian folk music. And I was talking, the gentleman's name is Roman, very frequently because I really planned to come to Ukraine in the summer. I asked him, what do you think? What's going on? And he was very calm, and he's a big cultural figure in my town. He was actually DJing a wedding, and he was like, I'm at a wedding right now, and he sent me a photo. He said, we're not scared at all. We will destroy them. I didn't know how to take it at the time, but it's one of those things like, it just gives me comfort that someone else feels this way, that someone else is so determined. And what was Svetlana thinking in the days or months leading up to the war? She tended to be very reserved when it came to that kind of thing. A typical response to something like that is, I don't want to talk about politics. And I understood that was the mindset. And you also have to understand, the region I was in, Russian was very often spoken. Not only that, but Svetlana was from a different generation. She'd come of age during the Soviet Union, when the Ukrainian language had almost entirely been stamped out in her region and across much of Ukraine. It was only after this war started that things started to change. I, I noticed a very quick switch to Ukrainian when we were writing to each other. It felt like almost immediate. Daniel tries to talk to Svetlana once a week, but it's difficult. It's hard to play the, the seesaw between talking about everyday things and someone's life and also trying to be there and support them. The Sumy region where Svetlana lives was surrounded by Russian forces for a month and a half, and they were shelling the area. She would say, we're being bombed every day, can't sleep, and these teachers still do Zoom school, they still go online, they still try to teach their children. The Russians retreated in early April, after Ukrainian forces were able to fend them off. I have some other friends who are still in Hruchiv, in the town, and they seem to be doing all right. They get the medication, they get humanitarian aid. They aren't constantly under fire, but life as they know it has absolutely drastically changed. They don't feel safe going out anywhere, doing very much during the day. And most people stay in bunkers or stay inside. Daniel feels restless. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know how I'm gonna get to help these people. I don't know what is gonna come next. I don't know when the war will be over. But all I want is for it to be done so I can go back. That's all I want. That's all I ever wanted. Daniel continues to stay in regular touch with his friends in Ukraine. Thankfully, they're all safe so far. And he's working on a student-led project tracking war crimes and archiving the war's impact on social and geopolitical dynamics in Ukraine, Russia, and Central Asia. He told me that not a single day goes by when he isn't thinking about the goal he set for himself after he was evacuated from Ukraine back in 2020, to return to Khluchiv 
and have tea with his fellow teachers. If you want to support Ukraine, please consider donating to razumforukraine.org. That's R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine.org. It was founded in 2014 in the wake of Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity by Dora Komiak, who's on the Harriman Institute's National Advisory Council. The organization has been working directly with volunteers in Ukraine to provide emergency relief where it's needed most. Thank you so much for listening to the first season of Voices of Ukraine from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Mashi Denseva-Brenner. This episode was written and produced by me and edited by Nathan Schiller with feedback from Marko Andrejcik. The music in this series was composed by Ivan Nebesny, who's still in Ukraine. If you missed episode 10, you should listen to learn more about him. The cover art for the podcast is by Victoria Tentler Krylov. If you enjoyed this series, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review. I want to extend a huge thank you to Ann Cooper, who edited much of this series, and to Jordan Waller, Nathan Schiller, and Marco Andrejcik for their continued feedback on the episodes. I also want to say a huge thank you to Daniel Alarcón, who edited the trailer. I look forward to seeing you all again in the fall.